0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. With that being said, we will be continuing our resurrected series that will carry us into the Ascension and Pentecost points of the annual church calendar in a couple weeks. And as has been mentioned over the past three weeks, we chose this series on resurrection in order to highlight the importance of the resurrection. We celebrate Jesus' rising from the dead on Easter, and as Christians, it is our joy to celebrate death to life in every facet of our lives. Thus, we have covered how Jesus' resurrection means that we have resurrected hearts. Our hearts of stone have been replaced with tender, soft, loving hearts of flesh, as it says in Ezekiel. We are free and capable now to love as God loves, to see as God sees. We are free to actually follow and obey God with joy. Our hearts are tuned toward him. We also saw how we have resurrected, we have we can look forward to resurrected bodies. Our physical bodies will be brought back from the dead. We'll actually be a flesh and blood, living thing, not just spirit. And they will be pain-free, they will be glorious. We will physically feel the warmth of our Savior. We will hug him, embrace him, feel his hand on our shoulder, maybe, and his face as he looks into our eyes and tells us that he loves us. And then last week we covered a resurrected Israel or a people to share God's character, love, and glory with the world, namely the church. We are now a people who can see the dry bones that surround us and go with confidence knowing that Jesus has the power to raise broken bones to life. We can look around, see our neighbors, and be inspired and compelled to share the message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to them without fear. We can stop doubting that God can actually redeem difficult situations and trust that as we are faithful to share the gospel, God will work to breathe his spirit into dust and see life created. We have seen how the resurrection has far-reaching and life-changing consequences and implications, and this week is no different. We will discuss how that truth affects our families. So let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for this morning together, and thank you for, Spirit, encouraging our hearts and tuning them to that worship of you that we may celebrate the risen Savior not just on Easter but in every day of our lives. We ask that that would be true. We ask that it would permeate us. So give me the ability to say what needs to be said in the ears and hearts for those who are here to listen. Amen. My limited experience in life thus far has not kept me from understanding that family, the word family, means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Rarely is the term met with simple, one-dimensional feeling. We don't attribute simple definitions to family because they are naturally complex. And this is not in itself wrong. The Godhead is familial. He has revealed himself as such. There is a Father, there is a Son, and a Spirit, and they're in eternal community together. And although there is infinite mystery in that relationship, the Bible has also revealed to us, it has given us a glimpse into how our lives, our families, are modeled in the Godhead's image. So when hearing the word family, many of you may hear warmth, love, fun, joy, security, safety, Sanctuary, even. You may begin to think of your childhood childhood, or your own children. You may think of holidays or summer afternoons or similar experiences of Sabbath and recreation. Others, when they hear the word family, they may hear or feel tenseness, conflict, anxiety, anger, obligation, unforgiveness, or even worse still, abuse, neglect, betrayal, darkness, death mourning, brokenness. I suspect that most, if not all of us, can relate to adjectives from both positive and negative categories, the balance between the two being that which actually colors our experiences. And this applies to everyone, married or not, children or not, everyone here is at least a son or a daughter, and likely also a brother or a sister, a niece, a nephew, uncle, aunt. We all come from somewhere. We were begotten thus all affected by family one way or the other. And why is this? Family is one of those words, those nouns that should be positive. I mean, when you ask anyone, the ideal is family is good. People spend their whole lives attempting to achieve that ideal. They achieve to reach an ideal family. And I'm not even talking about maybe the modern nuclear family. I'm not talking about 2.5 kids a yard in a house with a well-funded retirement account. I'm talking about people wanting to belong to a unit or group where they can feel loved, where they can feel safe. And I think that most people, if they wish it, if they could wish it upon themselves, would, ideal, would describe their ideal family in those or similar terms. And yet, brokenness seems to prevail. God had an idea for family, even in the beginning. In Genesis 1, 27, 28, he says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in verse 31, he says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In other words, to our first father and first mother, he gave the charge to have children and take care of the earth, tend the garden, cultivate it, grow together, work the earth together, raise children together And the brand new family was very good. God said so himself. And yet the story, which is probably familiar to most in the room, rather than sowing those seeds of beauty, rather than sowing the seeds of cultivation, rather than welcoming children into a perfect, sinless world, rather than taking ownership and responsibility for the trees and the plants, the birds and the beasts, our first parents chose to believe lies, chose to disobey, chose to neglect their roles as husband and wife, father and mother, and succumbed to their own desire and selfishness. So instead of seeds of beauty, they started sowing seeds of destruction immediately. They failed as our first parents and were rightly cursed for their transgression. The story goes as this, starting in Genesis 3.11. God says, after the fruit had been eaten, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so God curses them, and he says in verse 16, I will surely multiply, to the woman he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Reed and I were discussing this text over this past week because he's also giving the same sermon to Sojourn Southside, and he gave me a little information about that word childbearing, which in Hebrew is heron or heron, and this is not an ancient Hebrew lecture, so I'll keep it brief, but the word is only found three times in the Old Testament. In Ruth, and Hosea, it means conception, not necessarily childbearing. So in Genesis, the word does not necessarily mean physical pain in the act of birthing a child, although there is that, and in the King James Version, the, trans, uh, the, text translated, the text is translated as, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So in other words, it is possible that this curse is promising sorrow in getting pregnant, being pregnant, birthing a child, and having a child grow. All of them. It could cover any of those things. And in each case, the loss of a child is an ever-present possibility. And with regards to the second part of the curse, I will not go into it greatly right now, but as it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It is clear that right there, there is conflict immediately between the man and the woman, and it's promised. It is promised that there will be conflict. Verse 17, God's curse to Adam says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Cursed is the very ground because of you. Adam's curse is a promise of pain, toil, failures, and ultimately death cursed is the ground and to the ground you return to that curse you go you're enslaved to the ground both in life and death or in other words you're enslaved to the tomb for what is a tomb if it's not something cut out of the earth and a place where dead bodies go after this the first family was then sent out east of eden to live out their curses until death and it is there that there that they bring the second generation of human life, into the world, not in the garden. They brought babies into a broken world. In Genesis 4, we meet Cain and Abel. Cain, as firstborn and the first to receive the inheritance Adam, was described as a worker of the ground or a farmer, and Abel was a keeper of sheep or a herdsman. In this text, we see that both brothers bring offerings to the Lord. The Lord accepts Abel's offering, but we are told in verse 5, he has no regard for Cain's offering. We aren't told why the Lord rejects Cain's offering, but immediately we're told that Cain gets mad. He gets angry. Chapter 4, verse 6 through 8 says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The context of the Lord's rebuke tells us that Cain's offering was rejected primarily because of a heart issue, It wasn't necessarily the sacrifice. It was Cain's heart, his anger, his lack of contrition were what matters. And we see this later, even reflected in David's prayer in Psalm 51, which we read in our liturgy. Verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Going back to that curse or that warning that God gives Cain, note it says, Sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you. Desire for you, that text is the same language used in Eve's curse that God gave to her. Your desire shall be for your husband. Sin's desire is for you. So early on, we already see the seeds of destruction implanted in the offspring of Adam and Eve. Instead of a broken and contrite heart, Cain puts forth a jealous and prideful heart. And out of that jealousy, we see the first manifestation of Eve's sorrow and childbearing. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 11 says, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "Where Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. I read this text, and I feel like God is saying it with such anguish. And here we see the tomb claim its first victim. And again, note the similarity in the curse of Cain to the curse of Adam. Curses the ground, and cursed from the ground. Cain and Abel, father and son. In our first family, east of Eden, we see competition, jealousy, strife, rejection, unmet expectations, murder, heartbrokenness. Eve's baby was killed. The text doesn't say how our first parents responded, but I know in preparing for this, I was very uh, moved by the fact, um, in reading this, I, I have two boys. And it's heart-wrenching to think that they could be enemies of one another, and that they could kill one another. And that that, although it would be their sin, that I, as a son of Adam, have passed that on to them. So we see it was the generational sin passed down from father and mother, both father and mother, that plagued their family from parents to children. Failure is the inheritance, not life. Genesis 4 goes on to tell us about Cain's family. We are told of seven generations in the line of Cain that culminates in Lamech. In verse 23 of chapter 4, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zila, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for even striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This is Adam's legacy by way of Cain. It's one of violence, 77 times the revenge, 77 times the bloodlust, 77 times the fact that the grave would claim more and more and more victims, that the grave would claim more blood. And the Bible gives so many more examples of broken families. In a few chapters, just a few chapters, we were told of the curse of Cain and Noah's sons, and later, we are told of Jacob and Esau, which is yet another story wrought with deception, competition, violence, enmity, and strife. We are told of Jacob and his children, how many know the story of Joseph and the treatment his brothers gave him. But even before that story, we are told of two of Jacob's first sons, Simeon and Levi, and their violence in attempting to avenge their sister. And this is Levi, who would end up being the father of all priests of Israel. Genesis thirty-four thirty says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. So then as a father, rather than leading and discipling and helping his sons grow, he's more worried about his reputation and wealth than the cultivation of his family. So there we see Adam's sin, Adam's curse is growing and growing. And let us fast forward to David, a man after God's own heart. He famously had his fellow countrymen and subject, someone he was supposed to be caring for, murdered to fulfill his desire for Bathsheba. And the child of that illicit union would die, God promised it. So now we see even an innocent life being sent to the ground. And here we see the tomb claiming another victim. And more unrest is found in David's household. One of David's sons, Absalom, wants to murder him and conspire against him. Another of David's sons, Amnon, Uh, would defile David's daughter, Tamar. And we see that the families of the Bible go on to be marked by more competition, more striving for affection, more violence, more death, more selfishness, more blood crying from the ground that is soaked. And we know from the history of Israel, David's kingdom would eventually split and the people would be cast into captive exile. So what started as seeds, little seeds of a broken family would culminate in a broken kingdom. So I ask, based on the beginning of our discussion, what experiences mark your family, or the families that you have known? What have you experienced, more curse or more blessing? Where do you see those generational patterns passed down from fathers and mothers? Where in your family do the ghosts or the specters' blood cry out from the ground? What shall be done? Is there hope? Is there hope for your family? We are in need of a resurrection. The accounts of the families in the Old Testament are truly heartbreaking. There is much sadness and much brokenness that is all attributed to the sin of the human heart. But God, in his mercy and kindness, compassion, and long-suffering, did not abandon his creation, even then, in the first chapters of Genesis. Back in Genesis 4, after the account of Lamech that I read, we are given a story of hope. Immediately after Lamech, it says in Genesis four twenty-five to 26 And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At the time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So out of Eve's sadness, out of the loss of her child, out of the sorrow that comes from the curse that God promised her, God was merciful and said, I will give you another. I will give you another offspring. And this offspring would end up being the line, would establish the line of David and thus ultimately the line of Christ. And we are told that even in the midst of that cursed ground in which they lived, the people would begin to turn to God. The first beams of light begin to dawn on humanity's redemption. A child would be born, and his name is faithful and true, and he would not inherit the legacy of Adam. He would be a new Adam. He would not inherit the broken legacy of Levi, but would be in the order of Melchizedek, a true high priest. His ministry would not condone the violence of Lamech, but he would preach forgiveness not seven times, but 77 times. And he, like Abel, would be received into the ground after suffering the violence of his people, his family. They were his family. But Hebrews twelve twenty four tells us that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because the curse is lifted, Jesus' blood speaks peace rather than violence and consumption. His blood does not cry out from the ground because the tomb is empty. It's gone. It's not there. Rejoice, all you peoples, for Christ has been raised from the dead, and so too does he resurrect our families from the pit of the legacy of Adam. Acts three twenty five. It says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, and that offspring is Christ, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Blessing, not curse. And with this new covenant, with this life-changing result, what are we supposed to do with that? What is our charge? As Christ has reconciled us to himself, so too now can we be reconciled to our earthly families. And through his ministry of reconciliation, we become redeemed families. I am going to spend some time discussing the roles within the redeemed family, and I will spend some time talking to husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. But if you're not one of those, please don't tune out. The culmination of this message applies to all, I promise. Additionally, each of these passages could be multiple sermons, but for brevity's sake, I won't go over all of it. I just want to highlight a few things. But I will read for you. In Ephesians 5, 22, 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Eve, as we read, was cursed to be contrary to Adam, to have Adam rule over her. In the redeemed family, wives are free to submit to their husbands willingly and encourage them, to encourage their leadership. They are free from the competition and striving that is inherent to the curse because they know under the law of the Lord, under the law of Christ, the new covenant, that their husbands will take care of them. Wives of sojourn, love your husbands. Be gracious to them when they fail to love you like Jesus loves the church, when they fail to sacrifice for you, when they fail to lead your family with grace, wisdom, and peace. Graciously remind them when they are not leading well and pray for them that they do exhibit and pursue godliness and Christ-likeness. Pray for your husbands. Ephesians 5, 25-33 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, she might be holy, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ is the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Husbands of sojourn, love your wives. Because the blood of Christ speaks peace, the ground on which you tend, the garden of your family is no longer cursed. You no longer toil over it. You are free to love your family more than your work. You are free to pursue your family and prioritize your family above your career. Encourage your wives in the word. Encourage them to read their Bibles, to attend renewal groups, to pray with you and others. Seek Christ together. Nourish and cherish your wife. See that she is flourishing. Encourage a household that promotes growth and wisdom, graciousness, and godliness. Husbands, seek to be the first to confess, the first to forgive, and the first to reconcile. Because Christ was our first brother who did that first. Wives, respond to this leadership with grace and also seek to confess, forgive, and reconcile even when your husband fails to do so first. You know, I was preparing for this and I thought back when I was in college and unmarried, I was single, I read this, I felt like I read this every day, Ephesians 5, and like poured over it and obsessed over it. And then 10 years later, I got married, and I haven't read it in a long time. <laughs> and that speaks a lot, right? It's not that those things were bad in the beginning, but my charge as a husband is to love and cherish for my wife. And I need to go to the Word, and I need to be involved in this such that I can do those things faithfully. And it can be, uh, it can be tricky, right? I, we were preparing, Tate and I were preparing for this, um, we were preparing this document, this uh, content, And we were writing it together, and I really wanted her opinion. I really did. And she gave me all the information that she wanted, and then lo and behold, as an idiot, I forgot. I forgot to write it down. (laughs) And to me, on the surface, I'm like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll just come back and write it. But to her, it was devastating. It hurt her. Because I was not encouraging flourishing. I was not encouraging her and giving her the time of day to see that her words and wisdom were heard and felt throughout this thing that we were preparing together. Because it wasn't my thing, it was our thing. And so even even though it seems like a simple thing, there is so much more for me to learn. And there will be times when we egregiously offend our wives and it'll be obvious. But husbands, there's also gonna be those times when you're not even sure. And you need to be the first to reconcile, the first to forgive, the first to ask for forgiveness. Going on in Ephesians 6, 1-4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Man, it was like when I was preparing this, there was like multiple things. So right before, like a week ago, I was literally, I was provoking my child to anger (laughs) um, by arguing like, It's my dinner. No, it's my dinner. It's my dinner. It's my dinner. And it's like, okay, it's a two-year-old. Nick, come on. And Tate actually said, I mean, it was funny at the time, but Tate was like, I think it says not to provoke your children to anger. And I'm like, ooh, okay. Wow, I'm actually preaching on that. Um, But even more so, I mean, think about, like it it breaks my heart. The other day I was um, in the kitchen and they were eating lunch and I walked in and Winston was feeding macaroni off a spoon to our dog. And like, it's not a big deal, right? But in the moment I was like, what are you doing? And like the look on his face was just like so sad. And my father, my heavenly father, is patient with me. So I need to do that too. So fathers of sojourn, be present in your family. Put down your phones. Close your computers. Be engaged at the dinner table. Stop watching the game. Ask your kids about their days. Ask them about what makes them happy and what makes them sad. Nourish them and cultivate them such that they love Jesus and love his words. Raise them to love patience, gentleness, and sacrifice. Model it for them. Be patient with them. Delight in your children and make an effort such that they know you delight in them. We aren't given extensive insight into the family dynamics of Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, but we know the curse certainly fostered strife and certainly troubled the relationships of that family Each of you know, or maybe you don't know, the sin that has passed down from your father and mother from each generation before you. So I encourage you to ask the Spirit to reveal these curses, pray for the grace to reverse them, and by the blood of Christ that speaks a better word, seek to protect your children from them as you tend your garden. Because you see, the Christian household is a reflection of the church, and it is a little church in a sense. Roles lived out in a Christ-centered view will produce a fruitful garden. We have peace afforded through the resurrection because of the resurrection, and because of the resurrection, we get a Genesis redo. Jesus Jesus echoes God's original command in Genesis in the garden to be fruitful and multiply by telling us to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. But Jesus did not stop with just the familial household. This is applies to everyone. No, in fact, the resurrected family is so much more than just husbands, wives, and kids. The resurrected family is the church. So whether you're married or not, have children or not, are dating, single, divorced, widowed, have lost a child, are estranged from or struggle to interact with your flesh and blood family or the like, if you are in Christ, you have a first brother who loves you dearly and has welcomed you into his everlasting family. One that won't feel the weight of Adam and Eve's curse, one that will never fall apart and one that will stand the test of time and will work with the first brother to renew the face of the earth. Sojourn, we are a church and we are being renewed day by day into a resurrected family. We have a bond more significant than our biological blood. We are bonded by the body and blood of Christ and we remember that every week when we take communion Through the resurrection of Christ, our sonship is redeemed. We are adopted into his resurrected family, and we are sons and daughters. And because we are sons and daughters, we are heirs to the kingdom of God. And through that bond, we join our first brother in seeking the lost. Practically speaking, at Surgeon, we join in this commission through the neighborhood parish. Your parish is and should be a model of the resurrected family. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 20, all this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation and therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And your parish, made up of married couples, kids, single brothers and sisters, divorced brothers and sisters and more, will look different. Your Sabbath will look different. You will recreate differently You will discipline, disciple, and raise children differently. You will spend money differently. You will invest and work differently. You will conflict and reconcile differently. You will host and open up your homes differently because you are a part of a resurrected family. Your houses will become sanctuaries marked by peace, invitation, hospitality, and generosity. And the guest list will not be restricted to genealogy or flesh and blood, but will include neighbors and friends, coworkers, and more. And why will it be different? Because you are redemption-minded. And through the power of the Spirit and the resurrected Christ, you will help each other reconcile those broken relationships that each of us have suffered through our own sin and the sin of Adam. You, together as a family, will be able to reach out to your biological families. You, as a family, will be able to minister to those who have lost loved ones or children. You, as a family, will be able to invite others into that when they have been alone, lonely, lost, hopeless. Through the resurrection of Christ, our adoption and sonship are secure Because of this, we as adopted sons and daughters are are reconciled to one another and become that reconciled family. And in the resurrected family, the Spirit will work to resurrect broken marriages. He will resurrect broken parent and child relationships. He will resurrect broken relationships between brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister, son and mother-in-law, father and daughter-in-law. It can happen. There is hope. So at the beginning, I asked what the word family meant to each of you. And I pray that as we grow in Christ, for those of you who hear family and feel conflict or tenseness, violence or brokenness, I pray that through the resurrected family, through the resurrected family of this church, through your parishes, that that will fade away. And not just fade away, but washed away by the blood that speaks a better word, that it will be renewed, redeemed, resurrected. I pray that those who feel bitterness and loneliness at the thought of family would find peace and rest in the resurrected family of God. And I pray that each would see our adoption as a miracle and that together we would seek to invite other lost sheep into the fold. I know there's probably a lot of feelings, but there is, again, I will say it again, over and over and over, because of the resurrection of Christ, there is hope. The thing you're thinking about, the mother or the brother or the sister, the neighbor, the boss, the coworker, whoever. There is hope. And you don't have to do it alone. We're here. This is it. This is the resurrected family. And together we have hope. Let's pray.